It's a pleasure for me to join you guys. Um, I'm normally upstairs with a lot of your guys' uh, sons and daughters in uh, junior high and high school or kind of going around to different uh, children's classrooms. So it's a privilege to come in here and spend this time with you guys. Monday night, John asked me to cover for this weekend, and um, he said, it'd be nice if you could do a, a Christmas kind of message. So I decided we'd do David and Goliath. I missed that one. But, but if you want, turn, uh, turn to your Bibles in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a familiar story, obviously. It, it's used in um, context to, what, sports? It's a David and Goliath situation, or, you know, upset, or in business, David and Goliath. What I want us to see in this passage as we go through it is the journey that David goes through. Yes, we'll get to the battle, but if we understand the, 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 the path and the decisions and the faithfulness and the obedience that David did on the journey, by the time we get to the battle, you'll be like, well, yeah, of course. The victory is his. His eyes are on God. And it's an amazing journey. So I really want us to look at it like it's for the first time. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer, and we'll dive right in. Dearly Father, Lord, please make this passage, your word, come alive in us. Lord, I mean, come alive in such a way that it would change the way that we would, we would think and the way we would act and maybe even the way we'd love and give and receive and display grace. Lord, let your word penetrate our hearts so that we might live our lives in a way that would somehow bring you glory. Lord, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This story is just that. It's a, it's a story. So it would be appropriate to look and therefore teach it as a story. And that's kind of the plan for this morning. It would help as we start this. We're going to start in chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to, kind of, we're going to have a couple different scenes here. And then it's three different scene changes. And this is going to be scene 1. And it happens on the battleground. So let's just go ahead and dive in, and this will just kind of unfold for us. 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Sokah and Azekah, and Ephadim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. So here we are in the valley of Elah. It's about a mile wide valley. There's a, a creek or ravine in the middle of it, and it's, it's symmetrical. There's like a half a mile on a slope this side and a half a mile slope on this side, and this creek's about 15 to 20 feet at the bottom, and they were using that as their battle line. Verse 3, it says, The Philistines stood on the mountains on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with that valley in between them. The battle line has been drawn. And now we're going to see the appearance of the champion. And note, his size is so impressive that the writer takes a moment to tell us about it. Verse 4, Then the champion came out from the armies of the Philistines, named Goliath from Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. You're like, six cubits in the sand, that's huge. Thanks to Google, we can figure out 
how tall that is. And to give you a visual, just need a second to get my props ready. Got to get them appropriate for the season. Goliath, I got it marked here, there it is, would be wearing this Christmas cap. <laughs> Little perspective. Basically, what it's telling us in verse 4 is Goliath is one big dude. He's a big guy. Verse 5, it goes on and describes him. It says he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels. You're like, 5,000 shekels? I have no idea what that is. A 175-pound, basically, coat of arms. These coat of arms, it would have slung over his shoulder, a hole in for the head, and gone down to the lower thigh. It would have been a burlap base woven in it, brass rings to kind of absorb any blunt blow from a club or something like that. 175 pounds. He's a big dude. Verse 6, he had bronze, bronze grievous on his legs, which were like leggings or shin guards. And of course, a bronze javelin just slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed six hundred shekels of iron that's 20 pounds just put it in perspective holding out a spear with 20 pounds on the end i'd be quivering and it says in his shield carrier also walked before him obviously the uh, author wanted us to know that there's a shield carrier that walked before him don't fully understand that but this word for shield in the Hebrew, there's more than one. And this is the word for shield. It's the largest shield they used in battle. And it said that it's normally about the height of a man. So let's just say six foot tall shield. And this guy walks before Goliath. So we've got the battlefield. We're introduced to the champion. Now we're going to hear the big guy speak. Verse 8. He's going to give us two questions and then make a, a strong challenge. Verse 8, he stood up and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Question 1, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Fair question. Look at verse 16. Just jump forward real quick. We'll get some context here. Verse 16, how long has this been going on? Forty days. He's been coming out twice a day. This is the 80th time. And he's telling them, why do you keep coming out here? All dressed up. Question number two, it's a great question. Am I not a Philistine and you a servant of Saul? Here we are. Let's get it on. And then the statement, he says, choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. This is what they would call a represent, representative battle. Very common in these times. Instead of the whole armies, I mean, there was thousands of people on each side. Instead of the whole army fighting, you'd pick one representative, and they would fight, and whoever won would get the terms of the battle. Because even if you let the whole armies fight, even if you won, you could lose 80, 90% of your army. So the casualties were just too huge. So this was common. And I just sit there and wonder, I mean, what it would have been like six weeks these guys have been out in this war. 
and these soldiers, right? The army of God. This is Israel's army. And, and, this, and this guy's taunting them for 40 days. Can you imagine being in, in, one of the soldiers? Waking up in the morning in your cot, looking over the guy next to you. So how'd you sleep? Pretty good. What do you think we're going to do today? I'm not sure. Probably the same thing we do every day. Yeah, we better get dressed so we can get out there and stand. I mean, literally, they're, they're, they're not doing anything. And then when they're standing out, they're lined up, and, and Goliath's doing this. Can you imagine standing there? I mean, as a guy being like, oh, man, here he comes again. Yeah, I see him. And Goliath's like, well, choose for yourself a man. And you're like, uh, are you going? <laughs> uh, I was going to go yesterday, but uh, I think I'm going to pass today. And that's the, that's the situation. That's what's going on. Goliath is challenging the army of God, and yet it doesn't produce a long line of volunteers. Unfortunately, Saul's not faced with the problem of telling the guys, hey, guys, guys, cool it. Only one. Everyone's silent. Uh, Not me. I mean, literally, they needed our worship team and Brian to come back out and sing that last song, right? Where you go, I'll go and I'll follow. I mean, come on, guys, we can do this. Verse 9, this is Goliath speaking, and he goes on with kind of the agreement. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Verse 10, and again the Philistine said, again he says it, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. I think we can all agree. We've maybe never faced a man that big, but we've had giants, quote-unquote, in our lives. Things that seemingly come on a relentless basis, day after day. Sometimes it even feels like they come morning and night, whether it's a person or a pressure or a worry or a fear. Day in and day out standing in the creek yelling at us, come on, you're not good enough. That's scene one, that's the battle. We're going to go to scene two. This happens about 15 miles away in a little town called Bethlehem. Verse 12, we're going to be introduced to Jesse and his family. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in his years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. We're introduced to this David character and we learn a couple things that david's young he's a shepherd boy and he's really used for running errands now we don't know the exact age of david we can guess to be in the army it tells us in numbers that you had to at least be 20 years old three of his oldest brothers are in the army so if we assume the rest are in the army because they're too young we can sit there and think well there's four brothers ahead of them so he's the fifth one so they're a year apart He's roughly probably 15 years old. That was the best math I could, I could kind of put on it. Um, 
So David's a young guy. Verse 16 tells us, we've already kind of read it, the Philistine came forward morning and night for 40 days and took his stand. Basically, he's telling us that David's with his dad. His dad, we're going to see here, is concerned. Let's read verse 17. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Now take for your brothers an ephah of the roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. This is a dad who is just flat out concerned for his sons. I can't imagine, but I know probably some of you have had a son, possibly a daughter, away at war. Much less two, much less three. The war itself has been going on for 40 days, which is a long time in these types of battles. And there must have been a, a prelude to the war. So the sons have been gone a long time. And bottom line is, Jesse and David are concerned and worried about the brothers. So Jesse's going to send them out to go get some information. The first thing we see about David when we're introduced to him is that David is just simply available and ready. Just simply available and he's ready. Verse 19, for Saul, this is Jesse talking, for Saul and they, your brothers, and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah. That's true. This next part's not true. This is what he thinks, fighting with the Philistines. He thinks they're fighting. Go check on them. I hope they're okay. I hope we're winning. I hope they're alive. Verse 20. So David arose early in the morning. Another thing I think we can note about David is he was quick to obey. David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array shouting the war cry. This is exciting times. We've got to picture this 15-year-old kid, a 15-mile journey, coming up over the hills, seeing the army of Israel. He, he's questioning, like, are we winning, losing? He sees them all. They're, they're all there. He's thinking, oh, we must be really doing good in this battle. Looking at their uniforms, they're all still clean thinking, man, they're not all tattered up. Their, their armor's not all scratched and dinged. We must be really giving it to these Philistines. All right, this is awesome. They're out there, it says, doing their shouting, right? Morning calisthenics. Things are going great. David's all excited. Verse 21, Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. I look at this as like the opening ceremony of the Olympics, right? All the athletes coming in. And for this young boy, he's thinking, wow, this is awesome. And my, everyone looks so good. We, we must be doing great. Verse 22, David's so excited what's going on. He says, man, forget the cheese. So he leaves this baggage in the, in the care of the baggage keeper. It says, and he ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. Oh, how are you guys doing? How's it going? So glad you're okay. As he was talking with them, it says, Behold, suddenly the champion, the Philistine from Goth, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words. The difference is now David hears them. Him defy the army of God. He hears the defiance ring out as that has been done now for many weeks. But David's hearing them for the first time. And David's now putting it all together, thinking, wow, we're, what, what's going on? I thought we were doing great. He's saying this, you guys are cowering down. 
And David's sitting there, you know, talking to his brothers. The giant starts talking. I'm sure he's focused on them. Next thing I think he knows is he's standing alone. Look at verse 24. When, the, when all the men of Israel saw this, they didn't stink around and listen. It says what? They fled. They fled from him, and they were, they were greatly afraid. We keep seeing that phrase over and over again. We shouldn't miss it. It's being reinforced to us. That repetition is the key to help us understand the intent of the author. He wants us to understand that the defiance they are facing is relentless. But unfortunately, their response, their position has become their daily routine. It's now their common practice. They have grown the army of God accustomed to being defeated. They've now taken on the attitude, well, we can't do anything about this. I mean, yeah, we get dressed every morning, but we're not going to step forward. And this is a real sad picture. This is the chosen Israelites, the people that God led out of captivity. And when I was thinking this week about this part right here, this picture and how sad it is, these are men. We say this is a kid's story, but these are men of God. And I was thinking, man, the reverse image of this is what gives me passion for our youth in this church. For you, fourth, fifth, and sixth that are joining us today, maybe God, among our midst, upstairs with our junior high and high school, maybe he can raise up a generation of, of men and women, young shepherd boys, to do mighty things. And, and, and according to this, it might be the ones that we look and be like, well, they're, they're not the ones we would think can do it. They're not the ones that we'd look at right away and be like, well, of course him. But we can raise up men and women. And, and if they were standing in that line with the soldiers, they might not know what to do either, but at least they'll sit there and say, our eyes are on God. See, the problem was these men were lined up. They didn't know what to do, but their eyes weren't on God. Their eyes are on this big man, totally consumed. The sad thing is, this isn't just one moment of panic. But now it's become a pattern developed over time. The army of God. For almost six weeks, these guys, Saul included, have found themselves humiliated and paralyzed from fear. Verse 25. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. I mean, their, their, their eyes are just totally focused on this guy. They're not talking about the promises of God, the covenant that they're in. They're not talking about anything. They're just, have you seen him? And notice another thing in verse 25. Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up. Look back at verse 8 when we were talking about the battleground. Goliath was at the bottom in the ravine saying, you come down to me. And now we see Goliath now is what? He's coming up. And that is a great picture of what happens when we don't deal with sin in our lives in a godly fashion. They start encroaching. Goliath now moved past the battle line and now is coming up. And in our lives, the very same thing can happen. Verse 26. David's seen all this again for the first time. Saying, whoa, this 
this is what just happened. And David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? I mean, what's going on here, guys? I don't understand. Am I missing something? Why are we tolerating this? It's been 40 days? Let's put an end to this. And they didn't get it. Go back up halfway through verse 25. This is, it says, What will be done for the man who beats the giant? It will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, so you'll get a lot of money, and he will give him his daughter, which if you keep reading the story, that was a real bummer of a deal. She wasn't, she wasn't all that great. The best part about it is the third thing, you'll give free taxes. So that's the, the re- response. And David's like, but what are we doing? Why aren't we doing more about this? And another thing we can see about David, he stood for truth. He was out of his place here. He's a 15-year-old boy standing among men in an army. And he's questioning them. I mean, all he was to do is bring cheese and get the word and go back home. But he stood for truth. He goes on. Look at halfway through verse 26. He's questioning the men again. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? He's asking specifically this uncircumcised Philistine. He's basically saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's not a part of the covenant, is he? God didn't make a covenant with him, but God did make a covenant with us. God keeps his promises, doesn't he? See, the real sad thing about all this is God previously already told him to conquer the Philistines' land and occupy it and to kill them out. And yet again, Israel, in their defiance and disobedience, did not do that. And the Lord's used the Philistines now for a period of time to keep coming back and disciplining Israel. So David asked him, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he taunts the armies of the living God? Come on, guys. I mean, if God is for us, who shall be against us, right? Do we believe that? Why would you allow this oversized Philistine to drag the name of Yahweh through the valley of Elah, the mud, every single morning and evening? He's telling them, guys, do you forget? I mean, God's on our side. Any one of us plus God is the majority. Any one of us plus God is the majority. So what David's doing here is bringing to surface the concern for the glory of God's name. He's pointing out that there's more at stake here than just the fate of Israel and their army. There's more at stake here than just humbling of their pride. In essence, he's asking them, it's such a profound question. He's asking them, do you believe your beliefs? That's a simple phrase. That's a really good question. Do you believe your beliefs. We sing pretty neat songs that have pretty powerful words. I was reading Christmas cards we have at home, and they're just awesome. And I'm thinking, man, look at the verbiage here. Do we believe? Read the Christmas cards when you go home. I mean, do you believe it? I know we have the belief of it, but do we believe that? Because get this, it's not until we can believe our beliefs that we can doubt our doubts. 
And that's where David's at, man. This is right in his wheelhouse. I believe God is God. And this man stands against God. I'm on the winning side regardless. And old David, little David, man, he's holding his guns in front of this army of men. And it must have made an impact. Because look at verse 28. If you're, any of you younger have an older brother? This is the older brother syndrome. I'm the youngest. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David and said, Why have you come down here? And whom have you left those few sheep? It wasn't the flock of sheep. He's like, with whom? The, the three, four, or maybe five sheep? Who'd you leave those with? I know the insolence of, your, of the wickedness of your heart. For you have come down in order to see the battle, haven't you? And David responds, what, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? In case you missed it, David's brother was not giving him a warm, welcoming hug. He was not saying, oh, little brother David, thank you so much for sounding that right theological note that's been missing so much. Thank you. He's saying, stop, be quiet. We don't need to hear it enough. You can, the response is just literally dripping with jealousy. But David's jealous for God... And Eliab is jealous for himself. See, David is concerned that Goliath is defying God, and his brother is concerned that David is defining, defying him. And he presumes to know David's heart. I mean, why have you come down here? Who have you left those few sheep with? A good lesson to learn here, too. It's a dreadful thing for us to presume to know the intentions of one heart, especially when it comes out of a spirit of jealousy. It's a real dangerous thing. And worse than that, I mean, (laughs) just from a realistic point of view, talk about getting it wrong. Did you come down here to see the battle? If I was David, being not as mature, I'd be like, are you kidding me? Did I come down here to see the battle? What battle? You guys are just standing here playing soldier. I know there's not, but if there ever was a verse missing in the Bible, that'd be it. What battle? But David's smarter than that. He doesn't get caught up into that fight. Where am I here? What verse am I on? 29. Ah. Doesn't get caught up in the battle. And look at verse 30. I mean, this, is, this, is, this, is, this shows his maturity and godliness right here. Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. What we can learn right here is if we're going to be soldiers for God and we're going to accomplish what he has for us, we've got to fight the right fight. He could have at this moment in time expelled all his energy fighting his brother. That would have been me. I'm like, all right, brother. <laughs> Or, still remember at this point in time, he's just doing his dad a favor. He has no idea that he's going to end up in a fight. He could have said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Take the cheese, I'm out of here. He fights the right fight and doesn't get caught up. If we do the Lord's work, as most of you have probably experienced, things will swirl around us and problems and accusations and even people that mean good. 
But we've got to stay focused because there's, it's so easy to get off track. And next thing you know, we're exhausted and we've accomplished nothing. Fight the right fight. He turns away from him to another and says the same thing. I, I love that. And unfortunately, the people answered him the same thing. Because he's still asking, what are we doing? Why aren't we doing something about it? They're like, well, we'll get money, we'll get the daughter, and we'll get tax breaks. He's like, no, you're missing it. His message rang true, though, because he's preaching the true message. And this is encouraging, too. If we, even in the uncomfortability of being attacked, if we proclaim truth, his word won't return void. And in the midst of these unbelieving, unfaithful, off-focused soldiers, it says he must have been saying something right, and it must have got, you know, kept going through the ranks. Because look at verse 30, 31. When, when, when the words which David spoke were heard, they were told to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Saul's the king. So he's making an impact. He could have got discouraged and gave up this fight. His message got all the way to the king. Verse 32, David now is in front of Saul, and David says to Saul, my kids aren't in here. When I was this age, I, I remember getting called to the principal's office. <laughs> and this is the king. And I remember when I was in the principal's office, I couldn't put two words together. But look at, look at David. He says, then Saul said to David, you are not, I'm sorry, verse 32, let no man's heart fail on the count of him, Goliath. Your servant will go. I, David, I'll go. I'll fight with the Philistine. I mean, talk about a man who believed his beliefs. He's not just talking the talk. He's saying, put me in, coach. If no one else will do it, I'll do it. My God's huge. He believed his beliefs. And I love Saul's response. He kind of takes this uh, fatherly approach with David. Kind of lets him know he understands. Then Saul said to David, uh, You're not able to go against the Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul's response, I mean, let's face it, was reasonable. His response was sensible. His response was practical. But his response was wrong. It would have gone something like this. Ah, uh, little David, thanks for offering. I like you. I like when you come up here and bring me the cheese. I like your, you know, I wish I could take your little heart and put it in some of those soldiers out there. You're a good kid. I remember when I was young, full of passion and vision, and I thought I could conquer the world. But David, you've got to understand, I'm older now. I've got a little more experience. I'm seasoned. And the facts are, you're just a boy. You're, 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 you're just too young. See, unfortunately, and this is sad for Saul, because Saul started out being a pretty good king, but somewhere along the line, Saul began to view things from a man-centered position. He quit believing in Yahweh. Somewhere he stopped listening to his master's voice. He got too smart too full of knowledge and, you know, in his own wisdom and in his own experience to stop believing in God. Let us never become so smart. And we need to be careful because the reality is this can happen to us easily. And we can, we can, we can do so many of the right things. We can be involved in a lot of different ministries. We could go to church, heck, twice a week. 
read the Bible every day. We can do all those things without our heart being engaged once. We've got to be careful. It happens. Listen to this. Position and giftedness is not the same thing as godliness. Position and giftedness is not the same thing as godliness. Saul had a great position. He was actually pretty gifted. He was a big guy too. But it's different than godliness. Verse 34. David said to Saul, after Saul told him, you can't do this. So David responds, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came in and took a lamb from the flock. And I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard and I struck and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And get this, Saul, this uncircumcised Philistine, he'll be just like one of them since he taunted the armies of the living God. And David's heart here is spot on. He's not trying to convince Saul, hey, Saul, trust me, I'm tougher than I look. I know I'm little, but man, I'm, I'm quick. He's not saying that. He's right on, verse 34. He's saying, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion. I know who's my, where my power comes from. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear. I know where my hope lies. He is the one that will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Oh, David. Another thing we can learn from this, guys. We need to remember our victories. Our victories in the Lord. What he's done in our lives. The miracles and how he's come through. So often we do so good at remembering our failures. So easy for us to remember our shortcomings. But not David. He's like, I know what God's done in my life, and I'm going to cling to that. It's really logical thinking. He's saying, if God would help me rescue a lamb, why wouldn't he help me rescue a nation? He remembers what God's done for him in the past. He's saying, if God helped me subdue a lion and a bear who are just following their natural instinct, would God not help me subdue a giant who's defaming his name? David wasn't delivered from those situations with the lion or the bear because he was made of the right stuff. He's delivered because he trusted in a living God. And that's awesome. That's encouraging for me because I look at my own life and thinking, well, good, I hope there's more to it than me because I'm pretty limited. And David tells it to Saul and, and Saul's response is, well, fair enough. And, and so Saul says to David, Go, and, and may the Lord be with you. Oh, that's nice. And I think Saul, to be honest, I think he's saying, may the Lord be with you because he's going to have to be. Because this is going to be a train wreck. This is going to be really ugly. But yep, go ahead, may the Lord be with you. But, you know, why don't you come on over in my living room? i got some stuff I want you to try on. It might help. And, and so we get into verse 38, and Saul clothed David with his garments. And it's a pretty fun, funny visual here. It says he put a bronze helmet, kulplunk, on his head, and he clothed him with armor. Verse 39, I, 
I just have to assume David's girding the sword over his armor. And it says that not that he tried to see if he was still agile, not if he could still roll or jump or leap or or run. It just says, and he tried to what? Walk. (laughs) He's just trying to walk. He's like, with all due respect, Saul, uh, I haven't tested these out. I don't think this is going to work. You know, why don't you take these back? And he takes them off and puts back on his Bermudas, whatever they were back then. The point being, though, David went back to what he knew. And I think there's another lesson we can learn here from David. When we're following God doing ministry, my ministry might not look like your ministry, and your ministry might not look like mine. And that's okay. We need to be godly and biblical, but we have different styles and approaches. I don't need to do what you do, and you don't need to do what I do. And it can be different. We have a freedom in that. I remember, it must have been about six years ago, the first time I got asked to do a wedding. And I felt kind of awkward. I felt pretty young. And I've never done one, obviously. And I, I was talking to Pastor Bill and John, and they're like, oh, no, we'd really like you to do it. It was somebody, uh, the gal, it was the comer, uh, Kyle and Nicole Peak, the old drummer that moved up to Oregon. And she was in my wife's youth group back at our past church before this church existed and wanted us to marry her. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, then I guess I'll do it, guys. And Bill and John said, we'll help you. And John said, I got a wedding in just a couple weeks. Why don't you come watch me do it and, you know, take some notes. I'm thinking, perfect. I'm going to do more than just watch. I'm going to write down everything you say, and I'll say the same thing in my wedding. Because they think this would be great. And so I watched John, and I'm just sitting there. That's my mindset. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to really duplicate. And John, if you've ever been to one of his weddings, my goodness, she comes up in this John style, this sweet, endearing, like grabs her by the face. I'm like, ooh, you are beautiful, you princess, and kisses her on the forehead. I'm thinking, if I do that, Kyle's going to deck me. I'm like, and I just remember sitting there thinking, I can't do this. And John, after watching John do it, I'm like, that's the only way there would be to do a wedding. It's so perfect. They shouldn't have me do it. They're, I can't do that. I can't grab her cheeks. But John does it. It's like somebody watching somebody fall off a log, and it's so appropriate. But that's his style. My, it just wouldn't work. And I've learned now over the years that that's okay. We have freedom in that. I have some huge shoes that I swash around in when I come up here to fill in for John and Dave. And I can learn a ton from them, but I can't be them, and that's okay. And same thing with us as we do ministry, and we see it around this church. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch. People serve in their unique giftedness. So I'm thinking, man, that's awesome how you do that. I can never do that. I'm so glad you're doing that. Really. And we can just rest assured that it's, it's beautiful. Where are we at? What one? 38. Okay, 40. We're going to jump right to 40. So David goes back to what he knows. Verse 40. And he, and he took his stick in his, in his hand and chose for himself five stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. This is all starting to go down. Verse 41. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. I'm still intrigued with this shield-bearer. I mean, how good was this guy anyways? Have you ever thought about that? 
He had one job to do. He ended up being totally useless. He's holding this shield that's six feet tall. Can you imagine? Hold it. You coming? We're moving forward. All right. He's looking. He sees David. He's counting. He's like, oh. Oh, no, I missed. And the guy totally ends up being totally useless. But he's in there. So the shield bearer's in front of him. Verse 42, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. Of course, for but he was but a youth. Not just a youth, he was a, a ruddy youth. Right? You know that little 15-year-old scrawny ruddy youth? And worse than that, he was handsome. Who wants to get beat up by a ruddy youth, good-looking guy? So the Philistine said to David, and I think this is pretty witty. David told him his little wooden sling, What am I, a dog, that you come to me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, basically saying, You cannot be serious. Goliath, he saw him, he despised him, he cursed him, and he threatened him. And he goes on, verse 44, Philistine said to David, Come to me. You want to know what I'll do? I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the fields. Pretty graphic. And old David, man, he's prepared for this verbal abuse because David had his eyes on God. What he saw before him wasn't an individual, but a battle. And a battle with a foe that's opposed to the forces that is everything good to the purpose of God. He's saying, all right, I can take it. To David, this was not a battle between Philistine and Jew. It was a battle between the true living God and all their false, small, G, fake gods. So therefore, David's focus isn't on his adequacy or his bravery because he knows where David is weak, God is strong. And he's driven by a passion for God's honor. He's driven by a passion for God's glory. Against all odds. So we see a strong introduction from the Philistine. I I think you would agree. I'd be a little intimidated if I heard that. But David gives him a response that's not so bad itself. He kind of steps it up a notch. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you upon into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the skies and the wild beasts of the earth. And here it is that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all the assemblies may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. A man who relied on the strength not of his own, but of God. And we see the contrast, Goliath boasting in himself, and we see David boasting in God. Let not the wise man boast in wisdom, or the strong man boast in strength, 
or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me, the living God. He didn't go up against the enemy relying on his own strength and strategy, which is probably a good thing. His only experience was an experience of God. See, to David, the glory of God was at stake, and that was enough, enough for him to risk his own life. I was thinking about that. Where is the glory of God at stake in our lives, in our culture? Where is the glory of God at stake in our society? And what should our response be? David's not concerned about being a hero. He says, the Lord will give you into my hands. He'll take care of it. I'm here because I want all the earth to know that there is a God in Israel. The Lord doesn't deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. It's a wonderful, wonderful perspective, yeah? So we move on, and the big fellow starts to move closer. Verse 48. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. Just saying, I don't know if I'd be running quickly. I get, okay, I get up to the battle line. I don't know if I'd be running to it, but David is running. It's interesting, while David is running towards, his big brother and their army are been running away. Verse 49, and David put, in his hand, put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Period. Period. I mean, in all of the hoopla, in all of Goliath's grandeur, he is met with one stone from the boy's sling. Little stone estimated to be between two and three inches in diameter. Launched with a huge force, with a steady hand, laser accuracy, and this young boy knocks him out in the first round. Verse 50, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, and there was no sword in David's hand. And we round out this account with the head of Goliath going into Jerusalem and the Philistines being defeated and scattered about. But more importantly, we see the power of God shown to absolute perfection through the limitation of human weakness. David kept his eyes on God. And we sit there and say, okay, if I'm going to do the Lord's work, if I'm going to be God's soldier, regardless of my skill set, regardless of what I know and what I don't know and my fears and my anxieties, if I keep my eyes on Him, He can accomplish His work through me using His power through my weakness. David got it. It's available for us today. God plus you is the majority. It's just how God works. He's saying, man, it's not by your strength. It's not by your doing. I think of the apostles and, and Peter in that early church. I mean, here they are, the, the Lord's descended, and, and they are just in the midst of it, being persecuted like crazy, and they wanted to turn the earth upside down for, for Christ. 
And you know what they decided to do? And everyone must have been looking at them. You can't do that. It's not going to work. They decided to pray and to preach. Pray and to preach. Because it's not about them. It's about God. And I sit there and think about the Christmas story. I mean, the Jewish people wanted a king. They wanted a Messiah. They didn't want a baby in a manger. They wanted somebody to come in with force, push the Romans back, take back their land. He says, no, no, that's not how I'm going to do it. Through your weakness, I'll be made strong. You'll be made strong. We will be made, made strong. We can get caught up looking at this giant. And the more we look at him, the bigger he gets. The reality is when we look up at God... To David, this giant was, well, he was just too big to miss. To David, this giant could have been twice as big. Because when you're focused on God, and you're just in the midst of his will, you plus God is the majority. 2.15 on the dot. 12.15 on the dot. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of of David uh, just trusting and obeying and putting his faith in you and just allowing you to work through him, it seems unbelievable. It doesn't seem like it could work for us. We know ourselves and our weaknesses and our tendencies. We know our hearts. So, Lord, let us cling to you. Let us strip ourselves of any self-reliance that we might have on our own strength. All you say is just keep your eyes on me. Oh, my burden's easy. Come with me. I know what you're going through. I've got plans for you to prosper you and give you a whole future and a hope. Just keep your eyes on me. Lord, give us the strength and the faith and trust and hopefully the obedience to do that. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, all the families, all the individuals, Lord, for this Christmas season. Lord, no matter what's on the, the schedule or what's going on, and I know it looks different for everyone in different seasons of life, but we can rest assured that you love us so much you gave your son. Wow. So sufficient you are. Lord, it's in the, the most precious, the sweetest name. It's the name that is above all names. It's your son. It's our Lord. It's our Savior that we, the body of Christ, pray in. We all say in the name of Jesus, amen.